Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello there, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. We all remember how we began this year, glued to the tube and the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump, where two things impressed us. One, how undeniably guilty Donald Trump was of the single charge of sedition against him. Two, what an airtight, compelling case against Donald Trump was presented by the House impeachment managers. Together, they were a powerful team, every last one of them, so well-prepared, so articulate, so convincing, but no one more so than the lead impeachment manager, Congressman Jamie Raskin. A few days ago, I had the honor of interviewing Congressman Raskin about the impeachment trial and a whole lot of other important issues in a special Zoom program for the Hill Center on Washington's Capitol Hill. Now, as a special treat, I want to share that interview with Jamie Raskin with you here on the Bill Press Pod. Uh, Congressman, let's start with some sad news of the day. Uh, the flags over the White House are at half staff again today. Uh, in memory of victims of a mass shooting, this is the second week in a row. Last week it was Atlanta. Today it is Boulder, Colorado. You know, after Sandy Hook, after Las Vegas, uh, after Charleston, we saw no actions on gun safety. Uh, is there any chance that this time will be different? Well, those are the spectacular episodes of mass gun violence. Um, but a mass shooting is more than four people, and we have, on average, more than one a day. Um, so in a certain sense, from the perspective of my friends in the GOP and the NRA, this is business as usual, you know, and they want the, the society to get accustomed and conditioned to it. They would like people to think that there's something normal about this. This is why they call it a tragedy. It's like somebody coming down with cancer. A tragedy is Hamlet or Romeo and Juliet. These are crimes and they are preventable crimes. But we would need to conform our laws to what most of the rest of the world has. We would need to have a meaningful, universal background check for violent criminals and the deranged and fugitives and domestic felons and so on. This is what we just passed in the House completely on party lines. We, um, you know, the, the Republicans are overwhelmingly opposed to it in Washington, although when you get outside of Washington, we have mass bipartisan support. 75 or 80% uh, of the people support even a ban on assault weapons. And when you talk about a universal background check, uh, we're, talking, we're up around 95 or 96% of the people who want to close the uh, private gun show loophole, the internet loophole, and the private sale loophole. Just totally common sense constitutional things to do. And the president today, uh, before he went out to Columbus, he spoke to this. Um, 
called for Congress to pass the Senate, to pass the two bills that the House passed uh, earlier this week or last week, and, um, and also called for renewing the assault, the ban on assault weapons, as well as high uh, capacity magazines. Um, again, um, do you see any chance at all in the Senate? Well, the Senate, um, the, the Senate is possible because the Republicans in the Senate, because they represent an entire state, have to respond to a lot more people than most of the Republicans in the House who occupy gerrymandered territory. And, you know, gerrymandering has been the, the coin of the realm in the House. And we're trying to deal with that in H.R. 1 by abolishing gerrymandering and mandating independent redistricting commissions, which also the Republicans are vehemently opposing because they understand that that is the key to their dominance in Ohio and Wisconsin and North Carolina and uh, Pennsylvania before the state Supreme Court threw out those districts. But they're going to try to rebuild their margin um, with GOP uh, gerrymandering in Pennsylvania. Um, so well, I think that, um, you know, th these are the first uh, big gun massacres in the new Biden administration. And I think that the political heat is going to go way up on the GOP and the NRA, which has also been proven to be a deeply corrupt organization stealing from NRA members. I mean, they've just been looting the Treasury for the people who run it. So I think we've got a chance here. And who knows, um, the, you know, the gun violence may be the issue, you know, the background check and closing the Charleston loophole, which we did, moving from three days. And if the FBI hasn't completed the background check, you get the gun, which is how the white supremacist got the gun to go and kill the, um, you know, the worshipers at the AME church in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, we, we moved that from three days to 10 days and shifted the burden so you don't automatically get it in the event that they're still trying to determine whether or not, you know, you're in fact a felon. So I think if we turn up the heat, this might be the issue either that, you know, is the straw that breaks the camel's back in terms of the NRA's power, or alternatively, it might be the issue that um, is the straw that breaks the camel's back for filibuster. Right. Um, and of course, the difference is this time we have a president who is determined to do something about it and will fight for it, uh, as opposed to fighting against it, which um, um, certainly uh, a difference in in uh, the way things work here in Washington. Uh, Congressman, one other issue, uh, very important to those of us who live on the Hill and live in the District of Columbia, uh, was the subject of a big hearing in the House this week, and that is... Uh, possibility of statehood for the District of Columbia. Do you support it? And uh, how do you weigh its chances? Well, I strongly support it because statehood is the way that people gain their political equality and equal representation rights in the country. We started with 13 states. We've added 37 states, which means that nearly three quarters of the states have been admitted since the union was first created, and that was totally Jefferson's contemplation. If you go back and look at what he said at the time of the Northwest Ordinance, he said, we're not designed to be a colonial power where we have all these colonial possessions and we rule over people without their participation. We're designed to be 
a nation where people learn about democracy and then they gain their admission as states. And obviously, the people, uh, the 712,000 draft paying taxable citizens in Washington, D.C., who pay uh, more in absolute terms in federal taxes than people in half the states. Um, those people are clearly ready for statehood. And uh, the, you know, our friends in the GOP keep throwing up every conceivable imaginary argument. Like yesterday, they mentioned that there weren't any car dealerships in the District of Columbia, <laughs> which turned out not to be true. And then I turned to them and I said, so now you guys are going to support statehood for people uh, in Washington, right? Now that you've determined that there were actually car dealerships, they were saying there weren't bowling alleys and, you know, all of these nonsense arguments that are not actual conditions precedent, not actual requirements. Um, and so... Um, uh, I think that, you know, in the House, we will blow past all of those arguments. We will allow the general trajectory of democratic inclusion to keep rolling. We will support statehood uh, for Washington, D.C., which now would stand for Washington Douglas County after Frederick Douglas. Um, mm -hmm. But the federal district remains in shrunken form. Um, it's the White House and the Capitol and the Supreme Court and other federal buildings in the National Capital Service area, the mall area, so that Article 1, Section 8, 7, Clause 17, which is the district clause, is still vindicated. Congress still governs this federal district. Um, and let's hope we'll be able to do a better job uh, defending the Congress against the next mob of marauding Trump supporters who decide to conduct an insurrection against us. So, and, and let's be clear, Congressman, for everyone understands, um, I saw that one mem one Republican member of the committee said uh, that the Congress does not have the constitutional authority to grant statehood. That's not true, is it? It's only Congress that has the authority under Article 4 to grant statehood. There's never been a state admitted by way of constitutional amendment or by way of judicial action, nor has there ever been a statehood admission that has been struck down by any court in the land, including the U.S. Supreme Court. It's a political question. It's non-justiciable, which means the Supreme Court says that's up to Congress to decide. It's not up to us. So it's, that's the exact opposite of the truth. And um, Congress clearly has the authority to modify the boundaries of the federal district. It did this back in 1846 when it decided to redraw the District of Columbia to shrink it to subtract the lands that were Alexandria, Arlington, and Fairfax County, and retrocede them to Virginia. And uh, that was mm -hmm. challenged unsuccessfully. Um, so it's, it's a political question. It's totally up to Congress, which exercises exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over the district that is the seat of government. Well, without getting our hopes up too high, Congressman, um, some have pointed out now with a a majority still in the House, slim, but still in, the, uh, in a majority in the House, and at least a 50-50 split with the vice president there to break a tie in the Senate, that this may be the best chance in a long time to get statehood for D.C. Would you? Well, that's right. Um, of course, you need 60 votes to uh, invoke cloture against a filibuster, and certainly there are enough uh, senators who are uh, dead set opposed to democracy that they would try to filibuster it. And that's why it, it might trigger the filibuster question that's on everybody's mind. 
Um, the interesting thing is that um, lots of states, you know, have entered the union in pairs, like animals boarding Noah's Ark, uh, Kansas, Nebraska, <laughs> Hawaii, Alaska, yeah. Maine, and Kentucky. Um, and so, although we like to think that the states are admitted just out of abstract concern for political philosophy and equal rights. In fact, mm -hmm. it's always been infused with partisan and sectional and racial conflict. Okay, that's a reality. And clearly the Republicans want to make this a political football. But here's the interesting thing. There's another state out there, uh, another potential state that the Republicans have supported for admission for many decades, and that's Puerto Rico. It's been in the Republican right. national platform for many decades. The current um, resident commissioner, which is what they call their delegate from Puerto Rico, is a Republican. And the Republicans have said they're for this for a long time. So the makings of a deal are there. Um, if they really support Puerto Rican statehood, as they claim to do, and that's not a fraud also, they should step up and say, OK, the Democrats are strongly supporting Washington, D.C. The Republicans want Puerto Rico. Let's bring them in together. So let's see if they're for real about right. that and that there is, in fact, no racism involved in this debate at all. Uh, so not to make this too local, but probably the issue that residents of the Hill care the most about, Congressman, is the fence. The fence that finally part of the fence went is, is down. I walked down there today to check it out. Um, I guess the question is, why did it stay up so long? And when is the rest of the fence uh, around the Capitol going to go down? So we have access to the people's house. Nobody wants the fence, least of all the Democrats who've always championed uh, open access uh, to government, although not open access to violent insurrectionists who want to try to overturn election results. Right, uh, right. And I, so all of it, of course, is due to the uh, January 6th the insurrection that was incited by Donald Trump. Um, and um, we believe that um, after the various measures undertaken by Speaker Pelosi and the majority, that we are secure. We'd be secure against another uh, effort to try to overthrow the Constitution uh, and overthrow Congress. So I think that we are moving quickly to try to dismantle the fence that, that nobody wants. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we just want to make sure also that people aren't bringing arms onto the floor of the House. There are members of Congress who are seeking the right to bring guns there, uh, which we are not going to do because we don't need guns there. And if they had had guns on January 6th, a lot of us are not sure who they would have used those guns against, the insurrectionists, uh, who they were giving a lot of aid and comfort to, or against us. Congressman, in related to the insurrection, you have asked the FBI to investigate um, troubling incidences of extremists infiltrating our law enforcement um, based on what we saw uh, at the Capitol. Uh, where is that right now, and why is that so important? Well, there's a, a wonderful Capitol officer named Officer Dunn, uh, who I actually quoted anonymously during the uh, impeachment trial. He was the one who was battling the mob for four or five hours and then came inside and, you know, yelled in, in frustration. I got called 
an N-word 15 times today. Is this America, man? Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that um, he, he said to me was that he couldn't believe there were people identifying themselves to him as police officers who were in the mob. And sure yeah. enough, there were arrests of more than a dozen people who were police officers, not on the Capitol Police Force or not on the Metropolitan Police Department, but from other parts of the country who came to join Trump's mob to try to attack the Capitol. And this followed up on uh, evidence that we had in the Oversight Committee and the Subcommittee on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties, which I chair, um, that there were conscious strategies being undertaken by violent extremist groups, racist white nationalist groups, to infiltrate police departments so people could be armed, so they wouldn't have to worry about police detection themselves, so they could uh, use um, their force of arms against uh, African-American citizens and Hispanic citizens and you know, other racial minorities. And so they could get better access to elected officials and government plans and so on. Um, so that's truly alarming that there are deliberate efforts by violent extremist groups to infiltrate law enforcement in the fact that um, it was either 17 or 18 of these people were picked up on January 6th um, is profoundly disturbing. So we had asked the FBI about this long before January 6th. Um, mm -hmm. And under um, President Trump, they said that they had no reason to believe this was a problem and they didn't want to testify. And they basically blew us off. Um, after January 6th, after all of these arrests, I wrote back to FBI Director Ray. I told him that we wanted uh, him to come and testify in a hearing about racist organization infiltration of law enforcement and the threat that it presents to public safety. And we are still trying to work that out right now. The first big accomplishment of the Biden administration uh, is what they call the American Rescue Plan. Uh, passed the House, passed the Senate, the president has signed it. Members of the administration from the president on down are out around the country today um, letting people know what's in this plan in addition to the $1,400 checks. Um, as former Vice President Joe Biden might say, this really is a BFD isn't it, in terms of legislation? Absolutely. I mean, from, from my perspective, having spent a long time now working on the events of January 6th and the impeachment of uh, Donald Trump for his high crimes and misdemeanors against the country, the American Rescue Plan is the decisive answer to the chaos and the violence unleashed against us. It's the decisive answer because it shows that democracy can work for the people. So this is the real reputation of Donald Trump and the madness of his administration and his movement. The real answer is showing that in democracy, the government is an instrument of the common good and the public interest. And so with this, tr with this tremendous plan that President Biden helped to get through the House and the Senate, we're putting the shots in the arms. We're going to get the kids back in school by getting the money into the school systems. We're going to get people back to work. We're going to get people their checks, get money in the bank. We are going to 
revive the public health infrastructure. We're going to replenish the vaccine in the country. We're going to make the government work for the people. And what we saw over the last four years was government, not as an agent of the common good, but government as an instrument of private self-enrichment, money-making for the president, for his family, for his friends, um, and then essentially efforts to demoralize the workforce, undermine the government, so people lose faith in it. Um, And I mean, that's really the two visions that were at war. We basically were turned into a failed state. When you look at what happened with COVID-19, well, we were number one in the world in death count, number one in the world in case count, number one in the world in COVID propaganda. And the president of the United States himself was in, was trafficking in magical thinking, like this is all going to disappear on Easter or it's by the 4th of July, it's going to all be gone, or promoting quack miracle cures, like we're going to inject people with bleach, um, or pitting the states against each other, totally thwarting the constitutional design where it's the federal government that should be coordinating action among the states and making the country work together as a whole. And instead, we pitted them against each other and the president was doing everything he could to make war on uh, the governors and on the states. For example, when he fomented violent insurrection in Michigan against Governor Whitmer, who was the target of an assassination and kidnapping conspiracy. So, uh, and the president has indicated clearly um, that this is basically just the first step, right? Uh, now they're talking about a $3 trillion follow-up plan with, inf- with infrastructure, with um, um, investment in alternative energy, uh, and not to mention voting rights and other legislation on climate change, all of which gets us to uh, something that you have mentioned a couple of times already, Congressman, um, the reality of the filibuster in the Senate. What do you believe um, the Democratic leadership in the Senate, Democrats in the Senate, should do about the filibuster? Kill it or reform it? We should, well, um, we should we should try to get rid of it. And if we can't get rid of it, we should reform it. But we should try to abolish it. But let me just, let me go back to the point you made that was so important. I don't want us to skip over this. Um, sure. We are going to invest in the ailing, crumbling infrastructure of America. This is what Donald Trump should have done his first week in office. And he probably would have, he promised to do it. And he probably would have handed us our rear end politically had he actually focused on it, but they didn't have any interest in governing. The GOP is not a governing party anymore. They just want to vilify and demonize and so on. So he wanted to go after the immigrants and he wanted to shut down the government. And um, he wanted to uh, attack foreign leaders. Um, So that was what he wanted to do. He didn't want to invest in infrastructure. So now it's another four years late. But President Biden, the Biden-Harris administration, are committed to making government work for the country. So we're going to invest in the infrastructure, in the roads and the highways and the mass transit systems. We're going to invest in the ports and the airports and cybersecurity and everything that is collapsing in the country. And that's something, again, that unifies the vast majority of the American people of whatever political persuasion. But we know that they're going to fight us. Uh, The Republicans in the Senate are going to try to stop us because they don't want government to succeed. So 
if this is going to be the Battle of Gettysburg over um, over the filibuster, then let's have the conversation about whether we should be investing in the American infrastructure, getting those great jobs for working people, moving small businesses or not. Um, you know, the, the GOP had no problem cutting uh, a trillion and a half dollars worth of tax cuts for their best friends in the wealthiest companies and the wealthiest individuals in America. That's just money down the drain. But money that you invest in the infrastructure comes back to America. It moves our economy. It doesn't get shipped overseas to Swiss bank accounts in the Bimini Islands. So back to the filibuster, if you were to reform it, what would you suggest? What are the ways to maybe get enough votes, right, that to, to, to make some change? Well, let's start with this. Here's, here's why I would get rid of it, Bill. I mean, majority rule is the basic principle and assumption of our Constitution. So when we vote in the House, unless the Constitution otherwise specifies it's two-thirds, it's a majority vote. And it's the same thing in the Senate, unless it specifies for something like a veto override or the adoption of a treaty, it's a majority right. vote. Even the Supreme Court, when it votes, is five to four. So it's very odd to um, institute a rule which says you actually need 60 votes in order to pass legislation rather than 51 votes. So that's anti-democratic. The Senate already operates on an undemocratic principle, as you know. It's not one person, one vote based on districts of relatively equal size, which is what we've got in the House. It's California on the one hand, and then you've got you know Rhode Island on the other hand. You've got New York or State, Wyoming. you've got North Dakota, yes. and Wyoming, right? So we can't overlook the fact that there's a partisan dimension to this, which is why the Republicans are hanging on for dear life to the filibuster. When I was over in the Senate, one of the things I learned was that um, Democrats in the Senate represent 40 million more people than Republicans in the Senate, which is pretty extraordinary when you think about it. So um, then that's 50-50. When you say 41 senators can block 59 senators, theoretically, you could have much less than a quarter of the population thwarting the progress seen by three quarters of the population. So, um, so yeah, so we need to do it. I think it's a democratic imperative. Some of the reforms short of abolition um, are okay, but they're not great. I mean, when we say, for example, um, we should have just a, a standing filibuster, which means, okay, you can still filibuster and you need 60 votes to block it. Um, but now, rather than just as a senator being able to say, I, I'm going to stop that unless you can get um, unless you can get 60 votes to stop me, I actually have to stand up and spend the night speaking on my feet, old fashioned filibuster style. That's an improvement because you, you know, it requires some investment on the part of the senator. On the other hand, in the age of the internet, you can imagine a lot of these senators loving to do that uh, as a way to get internet notoriety and fame and do fundraising around it. You know, 
So I'm not sure that's a I mean, that doesn't get to the heart of the problem. One solution that I think is a little bit more of an improvement is rather than saying you need 60 votes to invoke cloture, you could say that you need 41 votes to prevent cloture. In other words, cloture could be assumed that if somebody says, okay, this person's put a hold on my bill, um, I am going to to, uh, introduce a, a measure saying that I've got 60 votes on my side. They've got to prove, no, I don't, by going to get 41 people who will say, for example, we will filibuster the universal background check on violent criminals buying guns. Mm-hmm. Uh, just one final point on that. Uh, Mitch McConnell went on the floor of the Senate today uh, and excoriated Democrats for suggesting that the filibuster had anything to do with racism. Um, you're an American historian, Congressman. Uh, it's nothing but a racist tool, is it? Well, um, you know, they're probably going to hang their hat on the idea that it didn't start as a racist uh, tool. And, um, you know, it started at a time of racism, but it was probably not directly for racist purposes. But when you look at it historically, it was used as a way to block anti-lynching legislation, to block civil rights legislation. It was always the enemy of uh, civil rights legislation in the 20th century. And you got to read Robert Caro's book about LBJ, the master of the Senate, um, uh, well, the whole series about how he ended up overcoming the filibuster and using his direct personal power to you know, shut down enough of the opposition in the South to overcome it. But it took many, many decades to do it. And the Senate was seen as the graveyard of civil rights legislation. Um, and, and today, of course, it is the principal impediment to everything that we want to do from authorizing the Violence Against Women Act to gun safety uh, legislation to the Equal Rights Amendment to you name it, HR1, defending people's voting rights, automatic voter registration, getting rid of gerrymandering. Um, it is the filibuster which is allowing uh, a shrinking minority party to exercise its power over everybody else. Uh, Congressman, I do want to ask you, look, with everything you've accomplished in your career so far and everything else you might accomplish, we will always remember you maybe best for your awesome leadership uh, as the lead house manager in the impeachment trial, second impeachment trial of Donald Trump, for which we are forever grateful. Um, I have to ask you, when you came to that decision, um, Donald Trump was impeached on in the House on the 13th of January, and he would have been out of office on the 20th anyhow. Did you have second thoughts about why we're going to go through this when he's going to be out of, out of office anyhow soon? No, no, not for one minute. Uh, although I should say, um, I felt very strongly that we should try to activate the provisions of the 25th Amendment specifically Section 4 of the 25th Amendment first. And we did vote yeah. on that on uh, on the Tuesday, the 12th. Um, first, we voted on that. And then the next day, we voted to impeach. Mm-hmm. We voted on a resolution asking the vice president to activate those provisions to remove the president from office. And the reason I felt so strongly about that was because there were two weeks left. And we didn't know what might happen. I mean, this was a president who had proven himself perfectly willing to incite violence against Congress. 
in order to stay in office. Um, he had lost 62 cases in court. He had tried to shake down the, the Republican Secretary of State in Georgia, Raffensperger, to say, you go out and find me 11,780 votes, right? So there was nothing he wouldn't do. Election fraud, incitement of uh, insurrection, lying repeatedly to the entire country, mobilizing the most extreme elements in the country. But uh, Pence at that point, um, what we, I think he was unwilling to, uh, you know, to take on the king once more. Mm -hmm. So uh, right. we, we moved to impeachment. We had impeached. Why? Because this was the worst presidential crime in the history of the United States against the union. Nothing else even comes close to what Trump did in inciting violent insurrection against us. So uh, we needed specific deterrence, as the criminal lawyers say. We needed to convict him. And then we would, had we succeeded in getting two thirds, we would have moved to disqualify him from ever holding federal office again. And we needed general deterrence to let presidents in the future know that uh, there's no January exception to the Constitution. You don't get a free month where you get to try to organize a coup, an insurrection, a revolution, or just line up all the members of Congress and shoot them. I have to say, personally, I thought that was your strongest argument. No January uh, exception. Congressman, as an attorney for a long time, you can read a room as well as anyone. When you stood in front of those senators reading that room, did you believe you really had a chance to persuade those Republicans to convict Donald Trump? I did. Um, I saw Mitch McConnell tear up several times. I saw him nodding vigorously when... Uh, other impeachment managers and I spoke of certain things. Um, I knew that there were certain senators who were a hopeless case. Um, Rand Paul refused to look up at the video monitor, so he wouldn't even look at the footage that we had of what happened on January 6th or of Donald Trump exhorting various crowds to go and fight like hell or you won't have a country anymore and you've got to show strength. You're not going to take your country back with weakness and all that stuff. He didn't look up. Uh, Ted Cruz didn't look up. Uh, Marco Rubio didn't look up all of the time. Um, so there were a number of them who didn't look up. But I thought Mitch McConnell was moved. Um, and, uh, well, we had seven. We needed 10 more. And I guess um, McConnell wasn't able to get those 10. I think if he had had enough senators who were willing to go with him, I think he would have voted to convict, which is why we got that speech so filled with cognitive dissonance after the trial was over, where he essentially said, we made our case. And, and it was proven that Donald Trump was responsible. And yet he decided to hang his hat on the jurisdictional hook uh, that uh, the Senate couldn't conduct a trial after the president had left office, although we had already decided that issue in the other direction on the first day of the trial. What message do you believe that Republicans sent by refusing to convict the president? given the evidence that you provided? They sent me the message that they're essentially members of a, of a cult of personality, a religious cult. And some of them could just as well end up selling flowers and incense at Dulles Airport one day as doing anything else with their <laughs> careers. I mean, they, they've proven that they uh, have uh, accepted uh, the loss of critical thinking. And some of these are people uh, who Donald Trump has aggressively insulted in the past. In fact, he's insulted their wives in the past. He's called their wives 
uh, fat and ugly. He said Ted Cruz's father um, participated in the assassination of JFK. Um, you know, he has aggressively and fiendishly insulted some of these people, and yet they they prove themselves to be absolutely submissive and masochistic sycophants. Uh, and finally, Congressman, I know it, many, so many people that I've talked to watching the trial, watching you as the leader of the uh, House um, managers, realizing what horrific personal tragedy you had in your own life with the death of your son, Tommy, um, wonder how you were able to find the strength, despite that, uh, to carry on and, and to to do that job must have been really tough. Well, I uh, felt then and I feel now that Tommy Raskin is in my heart and uh, I feel him in in my chest. Uh, so he was with me the whole time. Um, and um, look, I, I, I really felt there was no choice. I had to uh, I had to do it. And after all of the um, mass death and pain and suffering that the whole country experienced in 2020 with COVID-19 and the desperation and the demoralization that people felt. Um, I just thought I had to go forward. I kept thinking about my dad. My father used to say, when everything looks hopeless, you're the hope. Mm -hmm. And I, mm -hmm. I felt him strongly pushing me forward. And I had the support of uh, my wife and my daughters and our big extended family and my friends and colleagues. And um, I, I just felt there was no choice, Bill. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for all the great uh, leadership that you've shown us and particularly for that, uh, your leadership of the impeachment trial. At this point in our interview, Congressman Raskin entertained questions from the Hill Center audience joining us on Zoom. We'll hear those questions next, but first... A reminder about Republican efforts to suppress the vote. We saw how far Republicans are willing to go last week in Georgia, where they not only shortened voting hours, they made it a crime, a crime to give a drink of water to somebody standing in line to vote, a move that President Biden called sick and despicable. This must not stand, he said. Well, one way not to let it stand is for all of us to join Stacey Abrams and her continuing battle to expand, not suppress, voting rights across the nation. Her organization is Fair Fight. Their website is fairfight.com. Please go to the website, sign up, and join the fight to protect the right to vote for every American. Again, at fairfight.com. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs, just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Questions here. This follows up with what we've just talked about. Do you believe will there be any action taken uh, against Trump for the insurrection? Well, undoubtedly so. Um, it'll come from a lot of different directions. Um, there are criminal trials um, that are being scheduled and prosecutions and indictments taking place now. Hundreds of people who participated. Um, I think the evidence may be mounting, although I'm not privy to it, other than you know what I read in the newspaper. But I think there's evidence mounting that the president not only incited the insurrection, but uh, may have been a co-conspirator in it um, with uh, Roger Stone and mm -hmm. other of his deputies who may have participated in various ways in organizing um, the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters and the Oath Keepers and these extremist groups that you could view as kind of the red hot core working for a coup with the other violent people kind of fighting for an insurrection. And then outside of them, the people who were just, um, you know, beguiled into coming by the president through his social media to what they thought was a rally. Uh, but the president knew what was going on there. So there will be that. Uh, we're not finished with him yet because Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says that anyone who has sworn an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States and then betrays the United States, shall never be eligible again to hold federal office. That was put into the 14th Amendment by the radical Republicans um, after uh, the Civil War during the Reconstruction. And um, this should be a permanent block to the president holding office. Uh, and so we're not done with him yet either. And then, of course, there are all these prosecutions, uh, criminal and civil, uh, coming out of New York and D.C. I mean, I've got colleagues who brought lawsuits against um, the president under the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, which makes it uh, a crime uh, to uh, interfere with the uh, functioning of Congress. And I um, certainly a bunch of the rioters were charged. I can't remember if Trump himself was was charged or named as somebody involved, but uh, no, the, the law is not finished with him yet, and he's going to find himself increasingly a pariah. Here's an interesting one. You mentioned that uh, uh, 
of Rand Paul and Marco Rubio and a couple of others didn't look up at the video. Uh, one one of our guests wants to know: Did Josh Hawley look up? <laughs> Do you know? Um, I you know I, I can't quite remember, but he was somebody who also didn't seem to be looking. But you know right. what was interesting was the Republicans who watched looked very shaken mm-hmm. and riveted mm-hmm. the way the rest of the country did. So. Um, you know, there, there's still some human beings over on that side of the aisle. All right. Now, a Maryland issue that I was uh, unaware of, Congressman. Uh, the question is, now that the Maryland General Assembly has scrapped the racist state song, is there any chance that the song you wrote with Steve Jones <laughs> will be adopted? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, it, I think everybody's got a chance. Um, and, uh, you know, first of all, it's great what the General Assembly did. They got rid of a song that was an embarrassment to us. It never captured the spirit of our great state, which was part of the Union, uh, whose uh, soldiers fought for the Union against the Confederacy. That was a pro-Confederate anthem that refers to Lincoln as a tyrant and a despot and talks about northern scum. It just it made no sense. Um, and so, yeah, so last summer, I was approached by um, Elise Bryan from the D.C. Labor Chorus, and she said, um, you know, there's this movement to try to get rid of the Maryland song, um, and it never goes through because there are no, there's no other song where you write a song. And I was sort of touched and moved by it. I said, well, I would need a professional musician um, to help me because, you know, it's hard for me to sound everything out on the piano, but I, I wrote a song and um, and Steve Jones is an amazing musician and he helped me really turn it into something. And so you, you can find it online and we've got a candidate and, uh, that, that is my candidate. That was the best that I could come up with anyway. If I, if I hear one that's better, I will gladly switch my support over. But right now I think it's the best one out there. A question about voter suppression. We've seen, uh, I just saw, uh, 253, measures to suppress the vote, suppress the vote in some 43 states uh, from the Brennan Center for Justice. What do you believe can be done uh, about this whole effort on the part of Republicans um, to suppress the vote? Well, look, I mean, if you are a minority party um, and you're shrinking and all the demographics are against you, you either have to figure out a way to change your program and broaden your political appeal or if you refuse to do that, then you have to try to keep people from voting. And that's where we are. And that, that's what all of these measures are about in terms of eliminating early voting, making it more difficult uh, to register to vote, um, uh, eliminating um, you know, uh, mail balloting, on and on. All of these efforts to constrict the vote are coming from um, a totally partisan effort to keep people from voting. I think it's shameful. I, you know, I would say, and I speak as a strong Democrat, I would rather lose elections than deny other people their right to vote. I just think it's extraordinary where they are. So we passed HR1. HR1 is the comprehensive omnibus solution to this, that and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act um, coming up right after it. But what we do is we have universal automatic voter registration, Rather than leaving voter registration up to political candidates and campaigns and not-for-profits, we say the government will take responsibility for making sure everybody's registered to vote. 
which is the way that most advanced societies do it. We're getting rid of gerrymandering of the congressional districts by moving to independent, nonpartisan redistricting commissions. No politicians can be part of them. The Republicans are opposing us on that. We're getting rid of the corporate dark money. We're getting rid of the foreign money that's coming in and distorting our elections. They're very afraid of HR1 because everything we've got in there is overwhelmingly popular. And people understand that now it's a struggle between one party that's trying to give everybody the right to vote and another party that's trying to take away the rights of millions of people to vote. Back to the filibuster for a second. Uh, one question. Uh, I hear this a lot from Democrats and some Democratic senators have expressed this fear. What would happen uh, if the filibuster is eliminated? Um, what would happen if Republicans get back in the majority or if and when they get back in the majority? Well, it would be nothing worse than what's happened now, because I mean, basically, the Republicans allowed no progress before under McConnell, like on gun safety, like on voting rights, and they would allow no progress on gun safety or voting rights under that scenario. I mean, we we have got to um, act with some courage here to make progress for as long as we can do it and then keep the progress going. Um, and that's going to be the solution. D.C. statehood is critical. Puerto Rican statehood is critical. Getting everybody the right to vote uh, is essential. And, um, I, you know, it's embarrassing that the Republicans are making it so clear that they don't see any growth potential for their party and that their only hope is to keep people from participating. By the way, do you, um, in your conversations with the delegate from Puerto Rico, uh, are you confident that Puerto Rico is ready for statehood? I mean, the people of Puerto Rico want statehood. So they just voted in a plebiscite for it uh, three times in a row. They have voted for it. Every time they vote for it, there's another effort to say, well, let's have a, another another choice. But look, there's really no choice. I mean, you know, in, in American history, either you're going to be a colonial possession in the territory and you're going to get kicked around or you're going to be a state and you're going to people fighting for you in the Senate and in the House. During Hurricane Maria, Puerto Rico got cheated out of hundreds of millions of dollars in aid, and Donald Trump threw them paper yeah. towels. Just like D.C. got cheated out of hundreds of millions of dollars in COVID-19 funding uh, because of the Senate, uh, which we've just reversed now that the Democrats have taken control of the Senate, and D.C. is going to get the money that uh, it was owed. But there's no safety in being somebody's colonial possession. The only other alternative for Puerto Rico is independence, to leave the union. But I don't. to my mind, from everything I've heard from my friends from Puerto Rico, it's not a viable possibility. People are not going to give up Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, U.S. citizenship, and their intertwined destiny with the rest of America. I know the history of colonialism with Puerto Rico. There was history of colonialism with California, with New Mexico, with Texas, with lots of parts of the country, just like we have history with slavery um, in the country. But the trajectory of democratic change in America is that we overcome and we overthrow those institutions and we make sure that the country is responsive to everybody. So we want and we need Puerto Rico's leadership in America today, just like we need the leadership and participation 
of people who live in Washington. And finally, maybe the question that is number uppermost on everyone's mind uh, about you and the future, would you please run, the question is, would you please run, or do you plan to run, I should put it, for the Senate when Senator Cardin retires? Well, it, it's a very kind thought on behalf of uh, your your viewers, Bill, or you, I don't know, who came up with that gotcha question. Um, but no, look, I, um, I've just been through some serious trauma, like the country's been. I am writing something about everything that I've been through. I don't know what the future holds for me, other than I love serving the people of Montgomery and Frederick and Carroll County as the representative of the 8th District. I love my colleagues um, in the House, um, and um, I will take where I will I will take it wherever political fortune uh, takes me. I've got the opportunity to keep serving and to keep fighting for strong democracy in America and to defend our Constitution, and that makes me really happy to be in a place where I can do that. Well, we urge you to give for you to give that your serious consideration, uh, Congressman. Uh, and I will close with a statement here, not a question from one of our viewers reflecting, I'm sure, what a lot of people uh, are thinking. And it just says, thank you for your leadership. Jamie Raskin is my hero. How's that? Hey, uh, well, thank you. That means a lot to me. It's been quite a pleasure being with you, Bill. And I want to thank everybody for all of the support and solidarity and the strength through these tough times. So, Congressman, you're very kind to spend so much time with us tonight. Great to see you again. Thanks for having me, though. And that's it for today's special podcast with Congressman Jamie Raskin, a replay of my interview with Congressman Jamie Raskin at the Hill Center in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much again for joining us. Thanks, of course, to Congressman Raskin for a double take here on the Bill Press Pod. And thank you all for joining us. Please take care of yourselves. We'll be back this week on Thursday with our weekly roundtable with three top political reporters. Between now and then, stay safe, stay strong, wash your hands, wear the mask, you know what to do, social distance, and we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.